Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Today, I'm really excited to have Dr. Keltner on the show. Professor Keltner is a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, where he is co-director of the Greater Good Science Center, and where he investigates the social functions of emotion. His book is Born to be Good, The Science of a Meaningful Life. Thanks for being on the podcast today, Docker. It's good to be here, Scott. Yeah, I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. A big uh, admirer of your work. So I wanted to start by tracing the history of your research interests, because it's a true you started studying negative emotions. I did. I spent a lot of time studying shame and embarrassment and anger and fear. And like a lot of the field, you know, in, in a science of emotion after a postdoc with Paul Ekman, and I was making a lot of progress on those. And then for accidental reasons, you know, the kind of the yearbook photo study that I did with Ravenna Helson that looked at the predictive power of smiles in young women's lives and how it predicts later outcomes in life. And then working with George Bonanno on the function of laughter during really traumatic times like bereavement, I started to get interested in positive states. And just from there, it opened up really dramatically. Yeah. And around this time you're studying this, I was the field of positive psychology in existence yet as a thing? It was. You know, I mean, it was, you know, this is like the late 1990s okay. or, and early, really about that time period when positive psychology and, and Barb Fredrickson's paper in particular, Rodden and Bell Thinking, yeah. kind of was this revolutionary argument that we just need to take a whole new perspective on the positive states that make up our life. And she offered one taxonomy. And then as I was doing the Darwinian science of emotional expression, universality, 
yeah, there's a whole space of emotion from, you know, awe to laughter to love to kindness and compassion that needed to be looked at through the, the kind of the emotion science lens. That's great. Yeah. And, and it's great that you've tackled a lot of emotions that haven't really traditionally been gotten a lot of research attention. So three in particular that I find really interesting, love, compassion, and awe. Yeah. How is love different from compassion? Well, you know, I was really inspired by Bowlby's argument, right? And Bowlby, in his thinking about attachment and loss and grief, you know, he's this really radical theorist, and he was combining evolutionary thinking with Freudian thinking in the 60s. And he said, look, you know, our social connections can be broken down to a few different types. One is caring and the provision of nurturance to small, vulnerable beings, right? And that when I read that, that felt like compassion, just at its very core. It's about caregiving. And then love is really more horizontal. It's more between equals. And it really is about enduring commitment and attachment. And then in Bowlby's framework and then the frameworks that followed between, you know, friends and reproductive partners. So that's a ground for differentiating the two. And then you can start to differentiate them in terms of display behavior you know, compassion is really sort of a soothing, nurturing kind of display. Love is more open and affiliative and affectionate. And I really want to uh, to dive deeper into that. Would you say compassion is a necessary sufficient for love? Can you have love without compassion? I think so. I mean, I you know, if you go back to John Bowlby, he said that the that intimate family life and intimate social connection is founded on a few basic processes. Right? One is caring for vulnerable offspring. And our offspring are, you know, as they're more vulnerable than any mammal on the face of the earth. The second is long-term commitments that you really need to stay connected to a reproductive partner to get those vulnerable offspring off the ground. And the third is reproductive behavior, sexual behavior. That was Bowlby's argument. And we took that very literally and said, those functional arguments should help us differentiate love, which is about attachment, from compassion, which is really about caring from sexual desire, which is a reproductive-related emotion. And, and a lot of the data we've gathered that I write about in Born to Be Good speaks to that. And then I think, to your question, Scott, I think you can care independent of feeling loved in the moment, right? So I will have spontaneous feelings of care for vulnerable children right. who might not even be my kin. And that'll produce pro-social behavior that then lays the foundation for love. So love isn't a precondition for caring. And caring isn't a precondition for love. I think that our love of romantic partners often happens pretty independently of our, our exchange of caring. Fascinating. I think a lot about love from like a humanistic psychology perspective, like the will to love, role, man stuff, that there's very much a... There's passion, but there's also very much a willful component to it. It's not yeah. easy. It's not easy. Yeah. And to help want and care and want someone to grow, to help someone grow, it's kind of like that view of love as a mindset yeah. you know, or a way of being. And yeah, so I like that, making that distinction. It's not one that's often made in the scientific literature. You often see compassion folded in under love or kind of treated synonymously, right? And I would, and you know, I think your point is even more fundamental that we have to recognize that love, you know, we have these models of love that are based on teenage love, pyrotechnics, and early romance. And love 
it lasts a long time, right? In, in a lot of our lives, we stay married to somebody or in a romantic partnership with somebody for a long time. And, and that, those emotional dynamics are hard. They change. They soften. They transform. And I challenge my undergrads today at Berkeley who are 18, 19 years old, and I tell them, like, look, you know, you think of love as one thing today. And it's, it's rooted in desire and physical passion, but it's going to change profoundly. And it will be the hardest emotion you will have to cultivate over, over your lifetime yeah. for the reasons you're talking about. Yeah, because you have to cultivate it. Yeah. You do. Yeah. So then where does all fit in? Because all is this sort of this, this uh, something greater than ourselves. And, and yet yeah. there seems to be a link with compassion. Is that right? Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. So. It's your idea. (laughs) Well, the way that we think about these emotions, the positive emotions that I write about in Born to Be Good and that we're studying scientifically, awe, compassion, love, gratitude, desire, mirth or amusement, is they all serve different purposes in our highly complex, hypersocial life. Yeah. And awe, one of the amazing things about humans is we are a cultural animal. You know, and we fold into tribes, we fold into collectives, we adopt the principles and values and manners of other people. And there are a lot of sacrifices involved in becoming part of a collective. We'll often sacrifice ourselves for the collective. Mm. And so what John Hyde and I argued in an early paper on awe is that the experience of awe, when you feel that you're in the presence of something bigger than yourself that you don't understand, really at its core is about committing to your social collective, right? Mm. Whereas compassion orients you to take care of vulnerable beings around you. And love is about egalitarian partnerships. Awe sort of takes the individual and embeds it in social networks and social collectives. And we have a lot of data that fits that thesis. When we feel awe, we get more altruistic. We think of ourselves as more connected to others. We become more humble. So it is this collective emotion, as Durkheim once argued. Wow. Clark, you know, I'm trying to think of Paul Bloom's argument that the case against empathy. Yeah. And I'm trying to tie this all together. So my one, one question to help me tie this together is, do you make a distinction in your work between compassion and empathy? Yeah, you have to. You know, empathy, understanding what other people feel, feeling what other people feel, is different from compassion, which is I want to ameliorate the suffering of others. And in fact, neural data show empathy involves parts of the frontal lobes, compassion involves the periodontal gray, which is a very old region near the brainstem. So they're very separate. So with that said, I would predict scientifically that empathy would be much less correlated with all than compassion would be correlated with all. Yeah, I think that's a really cool idea, Scott. And, and I think Based on Paul Broom's work, yeah. Our data show that awe tends to correlate with compassion. Experiences of awe make people feel more compassionate towards others, right. right? Very often, experiences of profound compassion, say when you see someone really suffering, or you see, you know, a famine and the victims of a famine, will often trigger feelings of kind of a more fearful form of awe. So, so very often, compassion and awe are tightly connected to each other. Yeah, because there, there is this kind of getting outside of yourself aspect that empathy doesn't have. 
Yeah. Right. Fundamentally. It's like a higher level cognitive representation, you know, just to get nerdy for a second. And, you know, like we evolved, it seems like compassion is a more uh, recently evolved, you know, the cognitive mechanisms that support compassion are more uniquely developed in humans. Well, there I would, I would diverge, which is, it's interesting, and this is where neuroscientific data are useful. We, led by Emiliana Simon Thomas, Thomas did an imaging study, and when you see images of suffering, it activates old regions of your brain, right. stem, the periaqueductal gray. By contrast, when you understand the mental state of another person, that actually activates regions of the empathy network, which are in the frontal lobes, which is really different. So... I think we would make the case for just the opposite. That can wow. I know. Well, th- That's why we did the neuroscience, right? But, most people think compassion is really complex and has all these moral calculations or utilitarian calculations. But in fact, responding to the needs and suffering of others is very, very basic in the brain. Doctor, we need to link up, man. There's this uh, work that Mary Helen and Merdino Yang is doing. I'm showing uh, linking compassion to default mode network. Nice brain activity. And she's found that the more, you know, she shows all these vignettes of like the suffering of, you know, like a mother making a sacrifice for a poor child of food. And she found in the scanner that the more that people have time to reflect on the connection between what's going on and their own personal life, the greater the activity in the default mode network and also the more compassionate and abstractly complex the responses. Nice. So I wonder if all these things could interact and like maybe what you're saying is true, but maybe it's also true that you can add additional layers of uniquely human cognitive representations to even get more cognitively abstract. Yeah. Do you, do you see what I'm well, saying? Absolutely. And, and it's important to remember, you know, we use, there are certain elicitors of compassion that are very simple, old, right. stimuli. Right. We use images of suffering, right? Yeah. Suffering faces. And when you get into scenarios that are in the written word that's just inherently more symbolic and complex but i think you know a lot of people like peter singer wrote about right you know there are simpler forms of compassion and caring which is like my baby is suffering that's fundamental and then there are these more abstract complex forms of compassion Good. like i care about literary figures or people in another part of the world and and so they are they're going to be these really interesting interactions that we're just starting Good. to understand Good. This is great. All this neuroscience research needs like kind of an integrative model. And I agree. Yeah. So this is a great conversation. So return to all for a second. Something sure. that, that's really interesting is implications for education. You know, there's yeah. this nature deficit disorder. And I don't know if you've heard of that phrase. And there's also research linking, by the way, all in nature with creativity, a topic I'm personally yeah. interested in. So what do you think there could be implications for increasing creativity in schools? Well, I think they're massive. And you know, I've just been reading about, it is very widely assumed, not widely assumed, it's, it's a, a common assertion that when we feel awe and wonder, which is a little bit like the mental state of marveling over things, that triggers very deep thinking. We have data, as yet unpublished, but replicated many times, that if I feel a lot of awe, I, I engage in more rigorous scientific reasoning, right? So there's argument and evidence that awe is really good for scholarship and for reasoning about the world. And regrettably, you know, most educators, and we work with a lot of educators at the Greater Good Science Center, feel like that's been taken out of their school day. You know, that they just don't have the time for kids to wander and wander and get out in nature and get their hands dirty like Charles Darwin did. 
And I think that th I think this is a one of the platforms for rethinking our education. The kids need free time. They need they need to get outdoors. And then I also feel you know we're doing a lot of work now with the Sierra Club and Stacy Bear, looking at how outdoor excursions are good for kids in terms of their you know, and other people like Francis Quo have been interested in this. Just ability to concentrate, interest in the world, curiosity about things, open-minded inquiry, yeah. or finding really compelling data. So I think the awe-wonder angle is a really important sort of basis for thinking about where we can improve contemporary education. Hmm. I just love that. My kids are kind of in the, you know, they're in the hyper-competitive world now. They're in public schools. but they're trying to get into good colleges and how hard they're working just on tests, right? And just it countervails their curiosity. And, and I find that's that. Yeah. I don't know anyone who's been all inspired by taking the SATs. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of anyone. And that's proof in its own right. It really is. Yeah. What about implications for therapy for like clinical psychologists and incorporating all into therapy? Well, you know, a lot. I've spoken a lot to therapists, just you know, in my travels, and and they talk a lot about this. That you know, first of all, that when you're lacking awe about the world or wonder, it's a really sad sign of poor adjustment, right? That you're just not marveling at the sunset or a friend's generosity or the pattern of light on the ground. So that's telling. And they also talk about how. When people really make progress therapeutically, there are these epiphanies involved, you know, which is a form of awe. It's like, my God, I did not realize that this motif was so central to my life and my dad's life and his dad's life. Mm. And you just get into this more wonder-filled mindset where you're a little more forgiving of, of your own flaws and your character. So they very routinely mention that great therapy is rocket boosted by awe, which is an interesting connection. I love that. So maybe uh, some aspiring clinical psychologists listening to this podcast might be inspired to go more into this all-based therapy practice. Well, you know, it's interesting, Scott, in my work with the Sierra Club, one of the groups that we're getting outdoors and studying scientifically is veterans. And we, you know, we have over 2 million veterans. A lot of them are suffering profoundly. Yeah. A lot of them are young people who love challenge and, and the great outdoors and talk therapy may be a little counterintuitive, right? Or, yeah. or less accessible, not accessible, less just something that they wouldn't gravitate to intuitively. And we're getting amazing findings on the benefits, just getting outdoors and feeling awe. So I think there are a lot of therapeutic opportunities with experiences of awe. Good. That's a very exciting. It's a very exciting area of inquiry. So I want to talk about some other emotions. I mean, you, you cover, you, you basically study them all. <laughs> you study them. Yeah, I mean, there's, no, there's nothing off limits for you. <laughs> you know, let me just jump right. I want to jump to teasing. Can we, can we talk about yeah. teasing for a second? I was going to leave that for the end, but I, I want to jump right to that. So teasing is expressing potentially embarrassing affections. What, what's the association there? Well, you know, teasing is a way in which we bring up taboo subjects with other people, right? So let's say I want to express affection with somebody I'm flirting with. Yeah. And it's risky. Or let's say I want to 
express affection for a friend just to praise them, but you don't want to praise them directly. Or let's say I want to offer some suggestions or critiques to somebody because they've acted inappropriately. Those are all potentially embarrassing, awkward, fraught situations. And around the world, in every language that's been studied, from hunter-gatherers to Philadelphia, people tease each other, right? They joke and they make indirect comments and they exaggerate stuff to express these awkward affections toward one another. And the art of that, or the purpose, is just to soften the trickiness of conveying those messages. Hmm. I want to um, ask you a question that integrates various strands of your research. So let me know if this question makes sense. Sure. Does the ability to tease require access to your self-conscious emotions? Because are, do children with autism have difficulty with teasing? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I don't know where you got that question. But that's like, I just suddenly just came up with it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really cool because you're right. And, you know, it's interesting, teasing, you know, it's always, I know a lot of people feel hesitant about teasing because it can really be hurtful, right? Yeah. And I would call that bullying or just more straightforward aggression. And in, in Born to be Good and then in our scientific work, we have a framework for sort of classifying teases as friendly and fun or aggressive and offensive. But, you know, the great teasing begins in an appreciation of how other people might get embarrassed, right. right? Or how their feelings might get hurt, or they might feel ashamed. And then we deliver the message that could be embarrassing in a really playful, indirect, goofy way, and suddenly we're laughing about human foibles. We've got two pieces of data that fit your thesis. High-functioning Asperger's kids mm -hmm. have, you know, they have trouble with self-conscious emotions, understanding them, like embarrassment. And they have trouble with teasing. They're teasing. Yeah. It's more direct. It, doesn't, it isn't as playful. So evidence one. And then we've also studied people who have later in life have form of brain dementia that, that hits the orbital frontal lobes, or they have a head trauma, or they have kind of a loss of neurons in the orbital frontal cortex. They, too, have trouble understanding embarrassment. And we did a study, and their teasing is really inappropriate. You know, it's too sexually suggestive, it's too direct, it's impulsive. So I think great teasing begins in appreciating that you might embarrass other people. What a great question. So let's add in psychopaths here for a second. Yeah. Do psychopaths tease less? And do they actually do they experience embarrassment at all? You know, I don't know of any study that's looked at that. and Has anyone ever asked that question before? <laughs> it, I, it's a really important question. You know, Hare had this early thinking about psychopaths that they, they just don't feel guilt or remorse, right. or, which is another self-conscious emotion. So. Right. I don't want to ask the psychopaths. But, um, yeah, so what, well, you brought up guilt, and uh, there seems to be a link between guilt and prosociality. Is that right? Yeah, there is. And why? Why is there a link there? When you have done things to make you feel guilt you typically it's you've harmed someone else or maybe there's harm in the world you've created and your reputation is jeopardized and so given that guilt the studies show tends to make you more pro-social you're more altruistic studies find it's really interesting that this is i think cameron anderson or frank flynn that if i tend to be a little bit prone to guilt i'm a better leader right because I'm kind of worried about hurting other people's feelings. And as a result, I do things that 
are better for leadership. So it's a really undervalued emotion in our culture. Well, you know, yeah. well, this is interesting because the leadership, the power, you study power as well, right? Yeah, and that's my more recent book, The Power Paradox. Exactly. Starts, you know, you get power by advancing the welfare of others and sharing resources right. and expressing gratitude, Adam Grant's work and others. Right. And then power, once we feel above people, we feel privileged or we're invincible, we act like jerks, you know? And that's why I had, you know, I think this is in the footnotes of the power paradox. Guilt is a really important emotion to be looking for in leaders, which is, Good. are they going to correct themselves if they make mistakes, if they invest all of your money in a risky move and blow it? Are they going to figure out ways to make amends for the damages? So it's a counterintuitively important emotion for effective power. Super interesting. Although there are certainly cases where a lot of people who are jerks in power were jerks when they were born. <laughs> Right. Yeah, but those are, you know, I think those are less typical than you might imagine. Okay. Right. I think the more common trajectory is that you start out being interested in other people in power kind of brings out the bad in human nature. You know, even when you study like Joseph Stalin, it really was power that turned him into a madman. You know, a lot of historians, when they look at Hitler's early life, he was kind of an awkward, weird person, right? An artistic sensitivity, sensibilities. The power turned him into one of the world's worst madmen. So I think it's more common okay. that power does the bad work to you. I want to believe that. Apparently you do a Trump impersonation. Is that right? <laughs> I'm, I'm still here, even if I'm out of the shot. <laughs> Who told you that? <laughs> you you said it. That's By the way, that's Lizzie Elizabeth Hyde's voice on the Publicly. podcast. Publicly. So, so apparently you did a, a Trump impersonation. <laughs> Can you uh, do that for us? Okay, so I'll take my glasses off. So here's a, but it actually relates to a scientific point. Yep. So, you know, my new book, The Power Paradox, I write about how everybody thinks that people rise in power by being Machiavellian and, so, and narcissistic. But the data don't line up with that thinking. That instead, as we've been talking, Scott, what the data shows, once I have power, I become Machiavellian and Machiavellian. And so my colleague, Leanne Tambriki, and I just published a paper in Psychological Science to really test this for the first time in a very direct way. And we looked at U.S. senators. We coded their nonverbal behavior for narcissistic tendencies and also courageous, humane tendencies where you just show caring for other people. And we found that the courageous senators in their nonverbal behavior got more support for the bills they were trying to get passed, right? And the narcissistic Machiavellian senators got less support, so that strategy cost them. And here comes the Trump imitation. One of the key nonverbal expressions of narcissism looks like this. <laughs> <laughs> but the but guests can't see that. What? Wait, wait, do, do, wait, do it one more time. Do it one more time. I'm going to take a screen capture and, and put it on the podcast notes. Okay, good, good, good. I got it. I got it. I got it. And, this, <laughs> and what was great is the science showed that those Machiavellian narcissists in the Senate, no one liked them. They didn't want to support their bills. They, they weren't influential. So another reason to be skeptical of Trump. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, that's great. I'm going to put that in the show notes, that picture of you nice. doing a Trump present. Uh, so that's super interesting. And, and this, well, you know, I love taking a Maslow, uh, Maslow point of view. And he talked about esteem needs. And I would put power within the, you know, yeah. I put as in within the class of esteem needs. 
And it's yeah. important. You're kind of saying like, look, you know, this is actually like a fundamental human need. And that when we kind of get addicted to that satisfying that need or we get it, you know, too much, then that can actually turn us into a-holes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, and it's going to be so, I think you're rethinking of Maslow is going to be so important for our culture. Oh, wow. Uh, because, that means so much that you said that. Because, you know, what the new neuroscience is showing is that a lot of our social needs are on par with sleeping and near eating, you know, nearly as powerful as eating. One of them being caring for others, you know, mm -hmm. it's so striking, compassion activates old regions of the brain, so it's old evolutionarily. And another is status. And, you know, William James, there's no deeper craving that we have than to have the appreciation of other people. Yeah. And there's amazing work by Keely Muscatel, and I write about this in The Power Paradox, showing we hunger for the respect of other people. Yeah. And she shows, if I hear kind words about my reputation from a friend, it activates these safety networks in the brain, which are activated when we feel safe physically. Yeah. So it tells us that social safety and inclusion is on par with physical safety. And that drives us, like you were very aptly saying, to go after attention and respect and power. And then the trouble is, once we feel powerful, we lose sight of the very things that got us the status and respect of others in the first place. I could have said it better myself. I love that. And it does seem to be this cycle. And, you know, the narcissism, you know, Baumeister has this model that narcissism is an addiction of self-esteem. Yeah. And it's kind of an interesting way of thinking of these yeah. maladaptive. There's a point at which things just become maladaptive, I guess. Yeah. So Absolutely. So let's talk about morality. I think that transitions nicely from power to morality. Yeah. What is naive realism? Yeah, naive realism is so important. It's a concept that my advisor, Lee Ross, at Stanford, thought about, and Solomon Ash, used to be at Penn or Swarthmore, talked about, and others. And naive realism is the idea that we see the world subjectively. And that's one of the fundamental insights of psychology, right? Is that, you know, I see food and friends and social situations and rainbows and politics and presidential debates through my own subjective lens of emotion and history and the like. So truth is subjective, but we fail to appreciate that. We are naively assumed that we look at the world realistically, and that's fine, but it gets us into trouble when suddenly somebody has a different point of view about the presidential debate or about the merits of a movie or what have you, and, and we are struck that someone else could look at reality, which seems so truthful to us, in a different way. <laughs> right. and, and what happens is really predictable. And we showed this in early research that, you know, because I assume I see the world as it is, if I encounter somebody who sees it differently, I think they're irrational. I think they're dangerous. I think that they are problematic. And this is why, you know, some of the discussions today about making sure we allow for free open speech, this is really important because we have to, at the foundation is respect, and it's counterintuitive because of naive realism. Yeah, and also we have these biases to privilege our own point of view, or our own perspective, and I just think this relates as well to Kistanovich's work on rationality and how rational thinkers have that ability to inhibit their own perspective, which is activated by default. And Nate, yeah, that makes a very nice connection. I yeah. made that. That's really cool. Yeah. 
So you've studied three different moral domains, autonomy, community, and purity. How does that relate to uh, Jonathan Haidt's domains? Yeah, well, very much so, you know, and I know, you know, John and I have been old friends and we, you know, did our work on awe together. I know. Some, some writings. I asked those. you a leading question. <laughs> <laughs> and John is one of the most creative minds I've ever been around. And John and I, at the time, were hanging around as young scholars. He was a postdoc and I was a young professor at Wisconsin. And Rick Schwader and Paul Rosen were starting to think about broadening our thinking of, with respect to morality beyond Kohlberg, harm, rights, justice, to purity, sexual stuff, community, which is the sense of being embedded in a system of duties and roles and the like. And so, you know, autonomy, I think, I forgot what John's calling it now, so divinity clearly maps to purity uh, in his model. Yeah, I'm not sure. And then autonomy is really about freedom and liberty. Yeah. And then community, I, it's got a little bit of authority in there and obligate. I forgot what he is. So those are kind of the original foundations that John then branches off into different tributaries. So yeah, it's a foundation of his work. As well as yours and these three more. Yeah, you know, I, I, my approach, and it very much, you know, we've done a lot of work in this space, and it, it complements John's intellectual work, or it, it buttresses it, is... You know, we take a view of um, Martha Nussbaum and David right. Hume and Charles Darwin and others that emotions guide or drive moral judgment, mm. right? You know, one of my favorite examples is Thomas Clarkson. I was talking about this with somebody earlier who was critiquing emotions as a form of rationality. Thomas Clarkson was a college student in 18th century England, and when he thought about the slave trade and Africans on the bottom of those slave ships dying, British people didn't know about this. He literally collapsed off and fell off his horse in an emotional recognition of what was going on, a sympathetic breakthrough, right? He's like, my God, there's so much suffering in slavery. It just knocked him out. He fainted out of that emotion and out of that experience, he helped really develop the abolitionist movement and led to the end of slavery. So emotions drive reasoning in that sense. And so we've done a lot of work on how compassion makes us connect to fellow human beings, how awe makes us humble and share resources, how gratitude is an engine of reciprocity and trade between non-kin. And I think that they, those findings align with Haidt's really important work of kind of the, the intuitive old foundations of moral behavior and action. Mm, absolutely. And you also see a connection there with sympathy breakthroughs, how it's just so poignant, you know, how they trained the Nazis to, they had to practice themselves to uh, get rid of their compassion. And the flip side of this is when you are in war and you, you know, look your enemy in the eye and you have this sympathy breakthrough, you say, you know, you put down your gun, you say, I just can't, you know what, I can't kill my fellow human. And yeah, you know, that that is the historian's observation, and it blew me away that in combat, people routinely suffer because of the sympathy they feel for their adversaries who are being yeah. hurt. And there's all this new work coming out, and I work a lot with veterans, and, and you just sense it to be true that, you know, this idea of moral harm and moral injury, very powerful that when you hurt somebody, it destroys the moral fabric of your identity. That has to be 
And I think sympathy is right at the core of it. It tells out how powerful that sentiment is. You can't just root it out as you might intuit to get into combat. Yeah. So ending this whole interview today on that note, a kind of basic point there is we are wired to care in lots of ways. We're wired for compassion. There's a lot of good that's built into the system that you can't just evolutionarily reduce everything to one of these war order or some sort of selfish motivation. And even Darwin himself talked about compassion as being one of the most powerful human emotions. So, you know, and I remember being on a panel with the Dalai Lama and... Uh, I thought you were going to say with Darwin. That <laughs> <laughs> would be almost as good as being on the panel or just as good. You know, it was as early in my career and, and we were talking about compassion and he said, you know, compassion is a basic setting of the human mind. And I think that the data that continue to come in that I talk about at Born to Be Good and elsewhere show we have a very deep intuitive tendency to take care of others. And society needs to make the most of that. That's wonderful. Thanks for the great work you do and for chatting with me today. It's great to be with you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as thought-provoking and interesting as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can visit thepsychologypodcast.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's betterhelp.com. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.